Welcome to Support Heroes by Kaizo, the number one source of customer support insights in the world of audio. I'm your host, Sebastian. Each week on the show, we'll be having insightful conversations with customer support professionals from some of the most well-known and exciting companies around the world. If you're looking to forward your career in customer support, this is the place to learn from those who have succeeded in doing exactly that. Our superstar guests are at the ready to provide you the lessons they learned from many years on the front line of customer support. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy yet another episode of Support Heroes by Kaizo. Rui, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the invite. I have to make a public announcement where I need to apologize to Sebastian because you have been chasing <laughs> me for a long, long time to do this and I kept delaying for a lot of reasons. So finally here. Thank you very much for, for the invite. Uh, I've been hearing a couple of your uh, previous uh, podcasts and I think they're, they're really interesting and I'm really, really happy that um, support is gaining more and more momentum. I think that uh, everyone understands nowadays how critical support is, more so when we live in the pandemic world where people are turning to digital uh, for mm. almost everything. So it's really nice uh, to see the momentum and especially for, for me, which, is, uh, which I'm professional in this area. So uh, I'm really happy for all the work that you guys have been doing there. So great job and uh, keep it up. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, man. Like uh, I was going to say, good things come to those who wait, Rui. So you are the good thing and I am the man who waits. And then finally we're here and we can have a good time together. I have to say I was very much looking forward to this episode because when we spoke before, I think you really hit it off. We had a great conversation. So I was really looking forward to recording this one. Um, and yeah, I, I also agree with you. I think that a big theme of the podcast uh, that we've been speaking about quite regularly is that with the online world and with the subscription model, companies are understanding more and more that support is an important part of customer experience. And I think that was another recent shift for you, right? You were in uh, support operations at, at Moniz and you recently moved to director of customer experience at, at Deal. So um, kind of in that vein, Rui, could you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself, um, touch on that shift maybe, and also kind of introduce, to, introduce us into how you entered into support and then we can get into the, the main theme of, of outsourcing and, and all things like that. Sure, sounds uh, sounds perfect. So uh, I'm Rui. I'm 35 uh, year old. Uh, last week was my birthday. So for all congratulations again. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I'm based in Portugal. So I'm originally from Lisbon. I started working in uh, customer support 15 years ago. So basically, and this will actually be a, a fun fact. Uh, my day to day is based on numbers. So based on KPIs, based on SLAs, customer satisfaction, mm. and all. But if I go back maybe 16 or 17 years ago, uh, I was really bad at math at school. So I really hated it to the point mm. that um, in my last uh, high school year, I failed on mathematics. And then I didn't really make an effort to go to the final exam uh, and try to get uh, a normal score that would make me go to, to university. So instead, mm. I changed mathematics for six other subjects uh, and I started studying in the evening. So I really hated numbers, so I really ran away from it. Uh, so I started studying in the evening, and then a friend of mine was working at the time in a, in a call center, and he said, hey, uh, if you want to at least start working part-time here in the morning, because then you have the classes in the evening, you can make some cash, and it's actually uh, very laid back. People are nice. You just get to speak with customers, so just give it a try. Mm. So I did that. So I uh, started working there uh, in a Portuguese call center, uh, at the time doing a telemarketing campaigns, so calling people, asking if they wanted to change their telco provider, uh, selling them internet uh, bundles and all that. Mm -hmm. I started doing this only for four hours, so I was doing it in the morning. Then in the afternoon, I was taking my, my driving license, and then in the evening, I would go to school. 
Uh, when I finished school, I realized that I was earning relatively good money, given that I was still living mm. at my parents' house. So I decided to go full-time. So I started to, to go full-time. Uh, didn't really progress with my, with my studies. Uh, and mm. at the time, things made sense. Uh, living at my parents' house, getting cash, I could go out, I could spend time with my friends, didn't really need to rely on them. Uh, and the that life. led me to, exactly, there was living the life. <laughs> no responsibilities per se, only work. Yep. Um, but yeah, but, uh, but basically from there, um, when I started working full-time, obviously I also started investing uh, more time and more effort into, into what I was doing. Uh, mm -hmm. And it turned out well, so I was promoted to... Um, an agent position, then I was promoted to a quality analyst. I did also a bit of training. Uh, I mm. was then again promoted to a team lead role. Uh, and then in the end, uh, my last job there at that call center was as an operations manager. So I was basically managing mm. a team that was doing outsourcing for Santander, uh, the bank here in Portugal. Mm -hmm. uh, and my main duties was the outbound campaigns where we were basically selling credit cards, insurance, etc. So focusing right. on the, the outbound, the sales part, but then also focusing on the retention of these, uh, of these products. So if the customer uh, wanted to cancel his card or wanted to cancel his insurance, he would call uh, the bank and then we would have a specific line where we had a uh, mm -hmm. group of people that were basically doing retention. So I did that for about six years, um, almost seven. But then I realized that uh, I really wanted to try something abroad. So my dad, right. uh, when I was younger, he used to travel a lot uh, for work. And I think I got this from him. So I really wanted to, to try it out. So I then went and moved on to Ireland, where it was also a nice shift. I was in Portugal managing a team of almost 100 people with a lot of responsibilities. Wow. And then in Ireland, I went back to an agent position. So I started mm -hmm. from, from scratch. Um, that must been humbling. Yeah, I mean, the incentive for me was, I think, twofolded. One, I really wanted to, to be abroad. It was something that I always right. wanted to, to do. Mm -hmm. And then two, obviously, Ireland has different uh, lifestyle than in Portugal. Uh, yeah. Salaries are better. Obviously, cost of living is also higher. But my Much more Guinness. Exactly, much more Guinness, which, out of curiosity, I don't really like Guinness. So <laughs> <laughs> I can drink lighters. It is like a meal in and of itself, I find. like It's, it's a little bit of a hard thing to drink en masse. Contrary to what a lot of people in the UK and Ireland believe, but no, I, I, I'm the same with I you. I call it a soup. For me, that's a soup. It you can almost like put it soup. in a bowl. Uh, it's heat as it calorific up. as a soup. Exactly. Yeah. Get some soda bread, and then that's it. You yeah. just you just oh, eat my it. Goodness. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, the other incentive was also I was going to earn three times more of what I was earning here in Portugal, wow. uh, and with I would say not a lot of responsibilities, as in mm. I was just doing my job. I wasn't really managing people, so it, the incentive right. was there. So. I went there and I started doing similar to what I was doing here in Portugal, but at the time working mm -hmm. for uh, for HP, so they had a large call center there, where they were again also doing outsourcing for for Barclays. So I was basically uh, selling Barclay card and getting queries on uh, from customers on on that. Uh, from there, I only lasted around four months. So basically, didn't really have any idea of changing uh, changing roles. But at the time, they were looking for a team lead uh, position with Portuguese language skills. A contracting mm. agency uh, and when i applied i realized that it was for facebook so found it super mm. exciting i would join facebook as a contractor at the time managing a team i think of four or five people for the portuguese language market so mostly brazil uh, which would mm. be the biggest community or within portuguese uh, speaking uh, people within facebook uh, right. so i started there first uh, as a vendor team lead let's call it this way so i was representing the vendor and managing the team and then after mm -hmm. seven months, uh, Facebook was actually looking for a full-time employee to do similar uh, things. So I ended up applying and I was converted into a full-time employee. Uh, cool. And that's where 
outsourcing came back in the game. So I had started mm. there uh, on my career from a vendor perspective. And then at Facebook, I was actually on the client perspective. So at the right. time, Facebook was scaling really, really fast. So we didn't really have uh, a lot of resources to, to service our customers. So we had to look at outsourcing mm. uh, for a lot of reasons. One, the speed that we could actually scale with an outsourcing provider. So that actually allowed us to, to hire much faster than if we were to do it internally. Number yep. two, uh, what we were looking for was obviously people with experience in customer support, but we were also looking at the mm. language requirement. So if you think about right. Facebook, when you see content in your newsfeed, you have your friends posting things, you probably have multiple languages there. And if you really Absolutely. want to understand uh, the content when someone reports it, you need to have the language mm. component. So Facebook Absolutely. at the time, we had a team in Ireland, we had a team in uh, Austin, Texas, another one in San Francisco. Uh, and we had another one in Hyderabad in India. So if we wanted mm. to scale European languages, we couldn't really do it in Dublin, although Dublin is actually right. a very good environment to hire language um, or multilingual, multilingual talent because there's a lot of tech mm -hmm. companies there, so it's really good for it. We couldn't really scale as fast as we, as we wanted because Facebook was exploding in terms of users around the world. So This was we around like, 2013, wasn't it? So it's still yes. in that kind of big growth space. To, Correct. Uh, so this Facebook. was post-IPO. Post so when I joined, it was actually mm -hmm. post-IPO. But at the time, they were still scaling massively. So the customer right. base in the US was actually fairly stable. It was also growing. Mm -hmm. But where we were seeing more growth was coming from either Latin America, where, for example, I had to hire a lot of Spanish resources or from Europe and, uh, and Middle East. If you remember, the Arab mm. Spring actually brought a lot of people to the internet because they realized how tools mm. like Facebook, Twitter, and others uh, were actually yep. allowing them for, for freedom of speech to also expose a lot of the things that, uh, that were going on, on on that side of the world. And mm. then also, obviously, in APEC, it also started getting a lot of traction there. So mm -hmm. my job there was basically one, uh, work with our marketing teams and our country teams to understand where is the expansion coming from, where do we expect more customers, what is the timeline, so that then I could translate that into support needs and figure out our footprint and where we needed to, to set up uh, centers. Mm -hmm. So my job was mostly working with them, translating that into capacity needs, and then from there, going to the market and see, okay, where can we scale our operations? We didn't really want to have one center in every single country. So we looked for multilingual hubs where we could have uh, centers where we could attract talent from all over the world with all different languages so that we could centralize mm. our operations better. Uh, I did that for almost five years, did a lot of centers here in, uh, in Europe, also had the opportunity to launch three centers in North America, so in the US. So it was really, really exciting. Um, at mm. the time, I also had a kid. So my kid was oh, uh, wow. one year and a half. And uh, at my last year at Facebook, I was spending two weeks in Dublin, two weeks in Lisbon. So I think I did around mm. 46 or 47 flights that, uh, that last year. So I was constantly on the road. And then one day, my kid uh, basically went into what came from a, being a vegetable to a human being, where he started interacting with me, <laughs> where he started asking me, Daddy, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? And that's yeah. when it really hit me. And I, I realized that, okay, I need to be at home. Uh, I can't really be every two weeks on the, on the road because it's, it's mm. now affecting my, my personal life. So that led me to come to Portugal. Uh, where I then changed, and then I joined Uber. Uh, where I had a similar job, so again, scaling up a center. Uh, we were supporting uh, here in Lisbon. At least my my responsibilities were around Uber Eats. Uh, we mm -hmm. were servicing some some European markets, 
uh, and it was more or less the same thing. Set up the team, set up the processes, work with the with the market teams, work with the country teams to make sure that we have the right processes, we have the right feedback back into them so that they can work with the local restaurants, the local careers, and mm-hmm. also uh, understand from a customer perspective what are the things that are working well, not so well. So from there, uh, I then joined Dashlane. So I spent a long time at Facebook, actually, but then at Uber, uh, it wasn't that uh, that much. I only spent there 10 months. Uh, Dashlane mm-hmm. came in where they were also, again, setting up a new office here in Lisbon. It sounded really exciting, the opportunity. Uh, it was an area that I, again, being in the tech world, I had some understanding of tech, but this was a password mm-hmm. manager, a product that's very technical from the, from the backend perspective, but then from a customer yeah. side, uh, simplified, but also... Uh, with a couple of technical challenges. So it was and really exciting. Concerns, and security concerns, exactly. So mm. um, it was really interesting that uh, it was picking up really well, the product, not only because it works really well, it really facilitates your life from a security perspective, mm. but also from a niece perspective. I mean, I don't really need to mm. know all my passwords. All my passwords nowadays are random passwords created by Dashlane. Yep. And Dashlane just autofills everything for me, logs me in everywhere. Mm. And it, again, just removes the... Uh, the security uh, question mark that's always in my brain, is this password secure or not? But then it also makes <laughs> yeah. my life much easier because I don't need to memorize anything and it just doesn't yeah. work for me. So spend their eight months uh, because then Moniz uh, basically called me and said, hey, Rui, we're looking for a head of uh, customer operations. This is a really critical role for us. And for mm. me, it was the opportunity to be responsible for the entire support. So I had... Um, I had really been lucky working in great companies like Facebook, like Uber, uh, but I never really had the the entire support operations under my under my responsibility. So that was something exciting. So I joined Moniz, where I spent uh, almost two years. Uh, my job there was again uh, scaling up the team. We were growing a lot uh, within the European market. So again, looking at okay, where can we hire all of these resources between our offices in Lisbon, in Tallinn, and mm. in London. And there, uh, my job was again making sure that customer issues were being solved, customer issues were being flagged to our product teams, where then they would make sure that, okay, if this is an issue for our customers, let's try to fix it upstream so that the customer doesn't Mm. need to face this issue again. So I was there for almost, uh, as as I mentioned, two years. And now I've just recently joined uh, Deal. So uh, to go back to your initial question, my role is called Director of Customer Experience, uh, but I'm still responsible for our operations team. So our customer support team and our service operations team. So yeah, so in a nutshell, although it took me probably 10 minutes to explain all my career, so I'm going to try to be more short on, uh, on the other questions. But, uh, but yes, 15 years working in, uh, in customer support, started as an agent uh, in a call center. I had a lot of bias from my friends that would always ask me, why don't you go to university? That's where you should be, not spending time yeah. in a call center. So it is really interesting for me to be talking here, not just about my experience, but also to show that uh, this myth that call center is the last job you want to do and you're in a basement where you have really bad mm. conditions, is not actually accurate. And I've been lucky enough to have worked for some of the best companies in the world and I started in the call center industry. So yes. for me, I obviously... That's where I wanted to start my question. Yeah, yeah, because I think that so often people think that the way to progress in life and in their career is to go to university. But especially talking to recruiters and, and even those, those people that work in enormous, hugely successful companies, yes, you know, having a degree is a bonus, but very often it's about soft skills, it's about experience. And something I wanted to sound off on is the fact that you yourself said you didn't like maths, so much so that in school you didn't even want to entertain it. And 
you know, from my perspective as a as someone who's very interested and passionate about social science, I think that that is partially on the uh, the way that maths is taught in school. I think that that's uh, quite problematic. But secondly, I just wanted to sound off on the fact that regardless of how you felt about maths at the time, regardless about how you felt about organized education at the time, you still use maths metrics kpis to great effect in all of these roles you know for christ's sake you wouldn't have been able to work for these companies and to do so well if you weren't able to to use these numbers and to put them to good use so i think the reason that i'm really happy that you went into such detail is that i think then people can take away from that story and and know that there are there are ways to progress in your career and ways to progress in life that doesn't necessitate engaging with organized education. Not only is organized education quite expensive, but exactly as you said yourself, quite often it's not very gratifying and interesting for people. And that isn't the only way to educate yourself. Um, there isn't a school for podcasting. There isn't a school for audio engineering. Yet here I am sitting before you, Rui, without <laughs> without any uh, qualifications, but but regardless, we're able to produce a product that at least I would humbly say is, is better than some of our competitors. But the other thing that I wanted to sound off on is that uh, exactly as you said, the 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 misconception about the the uh, working conditions within a call center, because I think there is like this negative rep associated with it. And having worked with so many different operations, companies and call centers, how would you say that this misconception emerged? And how often have you actually encountered it in truth, right? Because you've seen so many of these companies and to be successful, especially in these roles at Facebook, for example, you would have to have really gone into the the, the detail of how these companies are working, how are you doing your jobs, how are you treating your employees, how do you hire people? Because I imagine that when you were building these relationships with these companies, they had to hire new people, they had to change their operations to suit your needs at Facebook. So could you just kind of introduce this topic for us? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe starting, I I think that uh, 15 years ago, there was a completely different perspective and notion of uh, what working in the call center is. I think at the time, Interesting. At the time, again, technology was already at a good pace, but uh, I don't think that uh, the most, like most of the common people, would understand that. Okay, when I call a customer support line, it's not just they just hire people and they just service me. So I don't really think people understood that. Mm. Let's say if you're a bank, you obviously are making revenue on your customers, so you can obviously put some of that revenue into into support. And support can be done in right. multiple ways. It can be done online, where Nowadays, maybe compared to 15 years ago, it has shifted a lot. People prefer to fix things on mm. their own. So I think companies now, what they're trying to do is not just from um, from a cost perspective. I think the cost perspective is very important and is it is on uh, mm. on everyone's uh, mind. Even if you're making a lot of money and you're making and you're growing and you're growing and growing, cost is always something that you have in mind. If you can do this at a yes. cheaper way or in a more efficient way, then let's try to do that first instead of just hiring people and just throwing people at the problem. So um, mm-hmm. if, if I think about it, I think today the normal customer would prefer to fix things on their own. So I have a problem. Right. Ideally, I wouldn't even have the problem at all, So, but I have a problem. So now I need to figure this out by myself. Uh, as a customer, mm-hmm. when you build your products, and we can talk about different products, either social media, financial services, any other mm-hmm. type of product that you can imagine, uh, you have different ways of fixing your problem. So let's say if you have an app and you have a problem, you want to do everything in the app. You don't really want to go outside of the app, go online, search for it, go to a help center that's very yeah. confusing, get a chatbot that asks you 5,000 questions before you can actually talk to someone because you have a problem. So <laughs> yeah. nowadays what the customer wants is, I have a problem, I want to fix it right away. So that's premise number mm-hmm. one. Premise number two is, if I can't really fix my problem myself, then I want someone to help me. I don't really care where yes. the person is sitting. If the person is sitting 
at home, not with everyone or most, uh, mm. mostly everyone working from home. If the person is in the office or if the person is in a call center that's outsourced, the customer itself doesn't really care. The customer just cares that the person yes. that's taking care of his issue is going to fix the problem. So that's premise number yes. two. And then premise number three yes. is if you're doing this through an outsourcing provider or through an internal provider, again, the customer doesn't really care. For the customer, that's the mm. brand that he's contacting. He's not contacting the BPO number one or BPO number two or mm. company number one or company number two. He's, he's basically contacting the service that is he's receiving and he's calling that company. So with this in yep. mind, I think nowadays it has changed a lot. Uh, people try to do everything online, so that's one. And then two, a lot of the customers mm. already have a good perce perception that, yes, if I call a company and if a company is really big, there's a likelihood that this is outsourced. But at the end of the day, I don't really care. Mm. If we think about Amazon, everyone talks about Amazon having the best customer support in the world. Amazon also has a big BPO network, outsourcing network, because again, yes. one hand, they can't do everything internally. Two, they need to scale fast because obviously their business continues to grow. They have a lot of demand. And they, at the end of the day, they want to make sure that their customers are getting the best support. So it doesn't really matter if it's an Amazon mm. employee or an outsourcing employee you want to have someone there available for, for the person. So yes. this perception has changed uh, a lot. So I think nowadays working in a call center isn't really perceived as something negative. Working in a call center mm. is actually something positive. If you, if you think about that, the world went into lockdown, uh, a lot of people lost their jobs. But if you think about people that maybe were working in supermarkets where everyone perceives it negatively, most of them maintained their job because supermarkets were still Very there. Uh, if you think about people yes. that were working in call centers, well, guess what? They went home. Uh, and the, but they're still working, so they're still earning money. They're still bringing in income at home. So I think this notion of servicing, not just in the call center industry, but also on uh, other type of servicing has actually evolved a lot. And people understand mm. now that, okay, it is fine working on that industry. You can make a career. You can earn really good money. Mm. And at the end of the day, you can be happy with it. So I think in 15 years, it has changed a lot. If I go back at the time, Yes, maybe not all of the call centers had the best conditions. Uh, a lot of the call centers, again, they were, there was a lot of competition, so there weren't a lot of providers in the market. So obviously, um, mm. they were all fighting for, for, for the business. Uh, they might not have made the best decisions, but I don't really think that it was a really bad, 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 bad experience. And I say bad that lot mm. because I came from there and I really enjoyed it, and I really learned a lot. So I think it depends mm. uh, on the call center, on the BPO provider, the same way that you have captive companies that some of them are really good for their employees, some of them are not Absolutely. that great, and some of them might be really bad. If you go on Glassdoor... There's always a spectrum. Exactly, if you go on Glassdoor and you look at the best companies uh, on Glassdoor, even those, they don't have a 100% uh, rating when it comes to employee yeah. satisfaction because people like some things yeah. and people don't like other things. So I think it has changed mm -hmm. a lot. But uh, at the time, if I think about 15 years ago, probably there was uh, a negative perception because of a lot of the stories that we have heard, at least in Portugal, if I think about mm. a lot of the call centers that we had here. And people would actually see it mostly as a cost-saving and not really as a mm. opportunity to scale your business and to provide a better support to your customers. I think this obviously varies from a lot of companies. If I think about uh, the outsourcing company that I was working for, we were doing a service for Santander. So Santander is a big, big brand. It's a really mm. big bank here in Portugal and in the world. And we were providing a really good service to, to the Santander customers, mm. but we weren't really Santander employees. So at the time, 
Uh, mm. This model was already working well, and the way that Santander looked at us wasn't really from, uh, okay, let's try to minimize the cost that we have with support because we don't really want to do it. No, they just came to this outsourcing provider because they were professionals in what they did, point number one. And then yes. point number two, they had the ability to actually go and hire people to do this type of work. If you think about Santander, their main focus is financial services. So that's where they are really, really good. Support, obviously, they have mm. people that are really good there. So I, the director of uh, call centers for Santander in Portugal, that is still the same person that he was 15 years ago, which was our, oh, really? which was our client, um, is mm. a professional on that area. But instead of him building up a 100-plus team uh, within his own mm. payroll and within his own premises, no, he actually decided to go to an outsourcing provider because it would just allow him to scale much faster, have much more availability, have longer um, service hours, have people that are professional on this, and they only do it. Mm. So that, for me, uh, is, is, is the biggest aspect uh, of it. So it has changed a lot. I don't yes. think it has the negative perception today. And I think that's that's really good for, for us that work in this industry, but also for, for people to see this sometimes as an opportunity to start their career. Because just like me, mm. there are many people that may have started in a call center may have moved directly into the client because they really performed well and the client wanted to, to get that resource or got the ability to then try different things that will actually help them secure a job in either same industry or a different industry. If I think about all of the people that mm. I have hired throughout my career uh, working at captive companies, a lot of them actually came from the from the BPOs and they were really talented employees. So I don't really see when I look at a CV, yes. okay, wait, this person comes from Facebook or this one comes from outsourcing provider. I'm going to look at the one from Facebook. No, I'm going to look at both of them and depending on the experience that they have, depending on what they did and obviously meeting the person and mm. actually getting to know them. And their references. Exactly. That's things. what's yeah, going to exactly. make my, my decision. So, so mm. yeah. yeah, it's about the person. I think that's also an evolution in the way that people hire because I mean, I remember a post by Elon Musk and he said, I'm not even looking for graduates. I'm just looking for smart, capable people. You know, I really don't care where you got your degree. And I think that that's kind of proliferating throughout the world because degrees are becoming more and more common. And that, you know, basic economics, you know, the, the greater the supply of something, the less it's valued within the economy, right? The more ubiquitous yeah. it becomes. But um, I just want to dig into that answer there because there's so much there. And I think that a good way to understand this conversation is through the stakeholders. So I think, again, just to reiterate what you said, from the perspective of the customer, they really don't care if it's an outsourcing program or an internal um, support program. The only thing that matters is, does it work? Does it work? Yes or no? If it's yes, perfect, beautiful. Um, I think simpling, kind of simplifying it down to that point really just makes it make the most sense. And whenever companies, I think, simplify something down to this precise statement, um, they can really achieve greatness. And I think Amazon, as the example that you gave, is, is the, the perfect kind of emblem of that notion. Then secondly, uh, the, from the perspective of the businesses, it makes total sense, right? I think especially from the, the perspective of scaling, you know, can you hire 20, 30, 40 people within a month? Yes, no. How, how easy is that? How difficult is that? How, how have we set up our company to be able to do that? Most likely, it's quite difficult to do. So it's much more easy to, to ask an outsourcing program, hey, could you increase the, the staff that we have available to us, say, in a few weeks? Much easier for them to do that. Or even hire another BPO and create a new contract with a different company and then in order to create that supply. I think the uh, simile that I would make is like uh, Apple. They don't make all of the individual parts that go into their phones. They, they buy the parts, right? They assemble them. The same with BMW. They're not going to make every valve, every small piece of, uh, uh, of metal that goes into the engine. No, they're going to buy those pieces and then assemble them at their factory and they'll take responsibility for that. But something that I wanted to ask you about, Rui, is someone who's 
kind of gone through this whole process as an employee and then also as a, a manager and as a person kind of making these contracts is the relationship of the the agents with the the company that's hiring the BPO. I think that there's kind of a spectrum here, right? Um, on the one hand, you mentioned that Facebook saw you as when you were kind of the, the vendor team lead, you were a contractor. You, uh, well, Am I correct mm-hmm. in understanding you were working for the BPO at the time? But it, it felt to me that Facebook more took you under their responsibility and, and you worked very closely with them. And I imagine that, if, for example, with that Santander example that you gave, Santander didn't necessarily see you working in the BPO as one of their employees. You were an employee of the BPO and then Santander had a contract with them. So can you talk to me a little bit about the the spectrum of relationships that these different companies have with the agents and perhaps uh, how in your experience these relationships can be made most productive and most beneficial for the agents Mm -hmm. because I think this is just an interesting spectrum to understand and it might also help people differentiate between the kind of jobs that they want to take in outsourcing programs or maybe even if they're working in a company how to make the most of the relationship uh, with that outsourcing program from the perspective of the agents and productivity Mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, sure. So first of all, there's a couple of different models. So um, the one that I had at Facebook, actually, when I joined Facebook, um, I was as a, as a contractor. So basically, mm-hmm. you have two options. You either decide to hire people through a contracting agency. And what it does is, let's say I'm ADECO, which is a very known contracting agency. I want mm-hmm. ADECO to hire me 50 people. Uh, they're going to be allocated to my program. And then these people are on my premises. So they come to my office. Yep. They have the same access than, uh, than the, let's call it a full-time employee in my company has. Yes. Maybe they will have some restrictions in terms of uh, some specific accesses because of data protection or because they don't really need mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But they come to the yep. office, they have the same conditions, they get to use the same uh, kitchen, they get to get uh, the same snacks, everything. So we don't really treat them as yep. third world class citizens, like again, the perception that mm-hmm. a lot of people have. Uh, but they are basically sitting next to us. That model works relatively well, obviously. It is a bit more expensive because it means that I need to have bigger office space, meaning that I have a higher cost with uh, with maintaining the office and all of that. Uh, yep. But what it actually gives you is that you're more close to them and there is no, mm. let's say, there is no wall, yeah, exactly, no barrier between the, let's call, the company one and the contracting agency. So everyone is working yes. together. I think that works really well when you start either with a small team because you're still testing the product and you want to make sure that, mm-hmm. okay, I might not have the resources in my company to start a support team. That's not really the area that I master. I just want to build product and put it out in the market. So let me actually get some contractors in. They can still get um, oversight from someone from my company, but I rely on them to actually help us understand what the customers are going through, what are the Mm -hmm. main problems. And then because they're actually sitting next to our engineers, next to our developers, Whenever an issue happens, the developer just goes in, sits next to the contractor and says, oh, this is what I need to fix. And you fix the problem there. So mm. you have this model. Uh, you also In that situation, sorry, would you also contract a team lead to kind of oversee those contractors and then you deal with uh, them? Potentially, yes. I mean, uh, my model, for example, mm. I, I joined as a team lead. So basically, I was me and the mm. team that was reporting to me as we were contractors. Right. Uh, we were basically on the mm-hmm. Facebook uh, site in Dublin. We were sitting mm-hmm. next to the people that were part of Facebook and working on, on this. And then we had a very close relationship with them. They hired me as a team lead because, again, uh, they didn't. It's not that they didn't really want to focus on the people or they didn't want to focus on the performance. But by bringing a team lead that's fully responsible for that, then the internal team can focus on where they are good, fixing the product, fixing the marketing uh, campaigns, on how we explain the product, how we educate the customers, and they don't really need to spend time 
managing the team, not because they don't like them or they don't want yes. them. It's just because, again, you hire a developer to do code and to improve your product. You don't hire the developer. It's division of exactly. labor. So yeah. that's that model. I think it works well. It also works well when, and we had that at Facebook. So we had a lot of contractors actually in our office in Dublin. Uh, and there were some mm. things that we didn't want to outsource because of data privacy and all of the data laws that we have nowadays, where we wanted to make sure that everything yep. was within our office. So those that was mm -hmm. one case. The other case would be things that we were just launching and we wanted to incubate. So let's say we launched a new product right. and now we're going to launch a new flow to support this product. We don't really know if it's mm -hmm. going to work well. Or we know that once we put the first flow, there's going to be a lot of issues, a lot of pain, a lot of friction to the customers. So we want to make sure that we have a people that are, again, sitting next to us uh, and making sure that they can leverage all of that feedback so that we can improve it. And then mm. once we feel that, okay, now this is a mature process, let's outsource this and let's start doing this at scale. Uh, then mm. we would probably put it on an outsourcing provider because there we had more people. And then we would do the same thing. Okay, what's mm -hmm. the new thing we want to launch? Okay, our contractor team on site will, will look at it. So you have that contractor model. Mm. And then the other model that you have is the outsourcing one. And the outsourcing one is where you fully outsource your work. And then you just maintain the relationship with the outsourcing provider. You make sure that you look yes. at the metrics, you look at the performance, you look at the customer satisfaction. Uh, you look at the quality of the agents, uh, the policy mistakes that they're doing, compliance issues, et cetera. And then what you do is uh, you basically rely on the outsourcing provider to fully manage end-to-end -end the, the operation, fully manage the KPIs. Mm. And you're, the way that I would describe this, uh, I have a friend of mine that at Facebook, he always laughed about it because I would say my job is I'm the middleman. So I'm representing yeah. Facebook. Uh, Facebook teams, let's say the marketing teams and the country teams, they want to launch new products. Their, their user base mm -hmm. is growing and they come to me and say, Rui, I need you to support my customers. I don't really care how you do it. If you put it mm -hmm. in outsourcing one, two or three, I just want to make sure that one, you take care of it. Here are the metrics that I want you to hit. Here are the policies that I want you to follow. And then my job would be, okay, let me go then to my outsourcing provider. And I want to make sure that he has everything that he needs. Okay, do you have the right training materials? No. Let me go and ask my country team because that's their responsibility. Uh, do you mm. have the right policy clarifications? No. Let me then go ask our policy team at Facebook because they need to clarify our team. So I was mostly yes. um, the gatekeeper, let's put it this way, between the two sides, the vendor side, in this case the outsourcing side, and our internal teams. Mm -hmm. And then I was also accountable for the metrics. So at the end of the day, if our coverage of our tickets, we weren't really hitting our SLAs, it was my responsibility. And then I had to work with my outsourcing network to make sure that, yeah, what's going on? Is it because we don't have enough people? Uh, is it because we're actually growing faster than we expected? And now we're actually having mm -hmm. backlogs. Is it because you're not performing well? Then what are the conversations that we need to have in terms of understanding where is this coming from? How can I help you? Because at the end of the day, and I think Facebook did this really, really well, and it still does, we didn't really see an outsourcing mm. provider as a different team. Yes, they were on a different payroll, yes. but they were still part of the entire community operations uh, yes. of Facebook. And I think this is what was critical for us in terms of having a highly engaged uh, team that wasn't on our payroll, mm. didn't have all of the benefits that uh, we had at Facebook, uh, didn't have access to all of the fancy latest MacBook Pros and your iPhones that we would get as employees, mm. but they were highly engaged. And in a lot of cases... Um, not specifically to Facebook, but what I have seen is sometimes your outsourcing teams even beat your internal teams in terms of productivity, in terms of quality, in terms of understanding what the customer needs, not because they are smarter mm. or anything like that, just because they're fully focused on that. 
Whereas some of our internal yes. teams, they need to have multiple hats because either they're also scaling very fast and they need to do a lot of things or uh, because, again, they just want to make sure they get a little bit of the understanding of what's happening in, the, in that world. So It's like a competitive advantage, the same way that BMW and, and Apple aren't as good as making the, the small pieces that go into their products. Um, so they hire uh, other people to make those things for them. But I think the interesting tidbit kind of within this whole story that you've painted for us, and thank you for painting it, um, is that it's about seeing the relationship, right, and investing into that relationship. From the perspective of the company that's hiring the outsourcing uh, company, it's that how much you can't just make demands of this company like you're ordering, uh, well, to go back to the example, ordering car parts mm -hmm. or ordering iPhone parts. It's, it's a much more of a, of a living thing. And I think also the thing that I'm sensing is with the example that you gave with the Facebook employees is that it's about the degree of closeness. And this is also something that was echoed by um, Heidi, uh, who works at Trivago um, in one of our early episodes. And she just said that, you know, when you're hiring one of these companies, either it's a tool that helps you uh, work and support or it's an outsourcing firm. It's about investing into that relationship and really integrating them into your company and into your company strategy. And I think then you can really see the fruits of that division of labor that you were talking about. So another example that comes to mind is um, I spoke to uh, Oleg Krasinov, who works at Miro. Now he's the head of support uh, operations or, or support excellence, I should say, uh, at Miro. When Miro entered into the pandemic, they had a huge influx of requests for education licenses because they were giving these uh, licenses away for free to help schools um, well, kind of get through the <laughs> pandemic almost. Um, and because they had such a stark increase and because this was quite repetitive work, they opted into having an outsourcing firm take responsibility for this process, right? Because it was very repetitive. Um, it was something that could be done quite simply. So they, they chose to then say, okay, because this is very protestative, because this is quite simple, we can ask these people who are very, very efficient at doing this one thing, to then take responsibility over that so we can have our internal teams focus on maybe something that's more complicated or something that's closer to the evolution of our product. And I think that's a really good example of how best to think about to utilize the different firms. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask, too, is that from the perspective of, um, you, you know, you building your career and, and applying to these jobs, how easy or difficult was it for you when kind of exa an example being that that Facebook job of understanding how close you would be to this company? Because if I put myself in the shoes of a junior manager or an agent or maybe even a senior manager that's looking to engage with these different jobs and relationships, it would be good for them to understand, OK, well, well I'm, I'm being hired by, say, Dashlane or, or, or Uber. Um, how close am I going to be to that company or am I going to be closer to the BPO? Is there any kind of ways that you as a person who, who wants to engage with these jobs, is there an easier way for you to kind of understand how that would actually look like when you're on the ground? Or is it something that basically just results of when you, when you understand the process? Yeah, so if, if I think about it, so first of all, there's different models. There's models where you don't really have a middleman like I was at Facebook, where my job mm. was basically connect with the with our outsourcing vendors make sure that they have all of the tools they need and all of the processes they need to be efficient and to hit their metrics so yeah mm. we at facebook we have another couple of ruiz uh, where our jobs was to manage bpos there are other models right. where there's not really a person that's fully responsible for it and it either falls on the mm. team lead of your internal team or the manager but again the manager has mm. much more duties to do than just manage yeah, a relationship tough. with the outsourcing so what a lot of companies mm. do is they have dedicated people for, for this function. Uh, and I've also mm. had a couple of models where I hired people to do precisely that. Okay, we have an outsourcing provider. Mm. And uh, as much as I come from that environment, as much as I've worked with that environment, I have other duties that I need to do. So I know that I will not be able yes. to fully support my outsourcing team. So 
I need someone that's hired to fully do that. So that's a couple of, uh, yes. of models that we that we can put in place. What I would say is just going back to your point. So when I joined Facebook initially as a contractor, then I joined uh, as a full-time employee. The first year that I was there, I was actually not working with outsourcing providers. I was just on the what we call community operations. So it was the team that was uh, right. servicing all of the customer queries that we were getting from customers. Mm -hmm. And then hired the person, uh, our director for outsourcing at the time. He came from PayPal and he had massive and massive experience of doing this at PayPal. So he had thousands of mm. people outsourced. So he already had a lot of this experience. And he came right. and I later joined that team, so I already had the experience, so it was a good opportunity for me. And one thing that he told me that I bring to everyone that I speak about outsourcing is, he told me, Rui, when you visit the outsourcing centers, there is one thing that is really important. You can spend a lot of the time with their salespeople, you can spend a lot of time with their managing directors, but at the end of the day, you need to spend the time with the agents, with the team leads, and the yes. operations managers, because they're going to be the ones that are yes. going to tell you how bad our tools are, the tools that we are giving them. They are going to be the ones telling yeah. us how our processes make no sense because they are seeing customers ask for things and the process actually contradicts that. They are going to be the yes. ones that are actually going to tell you if the BPO is actually not uh, treating them as we expect, as our standards. Yes. Uh, yes. And they are going to be the people that you need to have by your side because it's not going to be the managing director or the sales guy that's going to do all of the, the tickets. So they can bring you to nice restaurants Absolutely. and show you great presentations, but you need to spend time uh, with the people. So those are the relationships that matter. Exactly. And that was very interesting because at the time we were actually on the road to, uh, interviewing a couple of outsourcing uh, providers to, to understand okay, who makes more sense for us to start partnering with. And mm. when he told me that actually at the beginning of the visit, uh, I then realized also his posture in these meetings would be obviously he was paying attention to what everyone was saying. But after we came out of the meetings with the PowerPoints, he wanted to Poking sit next around. to the agents. Exactly. Yes. And for me, it was really interesting That's to the money see is. exactly like, okay, this guy is a director. He has like double the experience that I have. Like he's mm -hmm, traveled mm -hmm. the world. He has done this so many times. And whenever he visits the center, the first thing he does is actually go and talk to the agent. So Yes. And, and uh, what I want to say here is this is really important. I think this is why sometimes we have uh, the negative perception internally. So not not not, not talking about the public uh, perception, but mm -hmm. a lot of companies say, oh, we are now going to outsource part of our business. And there's usually a huge debate. Oh, why are we going to do that? We're going to lose track of what's happening with our customers. They're not going to be as control. engaged. But mm. when we actually explain that, look, guys, we're not going to lose that because what we want to do is we want to visit the centers regularly. So we want to be on the yes. ground. We want yes. to make sure that we are transparent with them. Uh, if they do something that actually is wrong, we want to tell them. But if they actually do something that is really good and it had a great impact to our customers, we want to make sure that we praise them give and them we give credit. them that, that credit. Exactly. So at Facebook, again, I know that it's, uh, it's, it's hard for some companies because obviously Facebook makes a lot of money, has a lot of uh, bandwidth to do all of these things, to constantly mm -hmm. have people traveling to the sites, um, constantly having people... Uh, going on site and making sure that even if you're an outsourcing location, it has the feel of uh, of a Facebook office because we really yes. focus on, on on making sure that uh, the banners of Facebook again, not just because we wanted the brand there, but we wanted it to look like to what it looks in our of the office. Company. Exactly. You don't want them to feel like a third world citizen, exactly as you say. Exactly, and we worked a lot mm. on that. There was actually a lot of the focus that we had whenever we were launching outsourcing providers, and it was explaining that look, guys, we might eventually pay you above the market rate, but we want to make sure that you're going to invest that money back into your team. We want to make sure that they have mm. really nice, cozy spaces for breakouts. We want to make sure that they have a foosball machine or 
I don't know, like arcade games, whatever you wanted, you ask your people, but we want to we want to see that investment. And I think the nicest yes. thing um, that we had at Facebook was that some of our internal teams, when I would go and visit the centers and I would bring them with us because I wanted to make sure that they could actually see the people that do the job and for them, them, they mm -hmm. would come back and say, whoa, like this vendor, actually their office looks much nicer than ours. So I actually <laughs> wanna go you back want to go back and work there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want. So I think it's, again, it's important to build this. And then it's also important mm. for, for people like me that then are, are then managing this relationship, making sure that the rest of the business that has no idea what outsourcing is, they don't have a negative mm. perception. If you're able to... Yes. If you're able to explain your other internal teams of how great it is to have this provider, the great work that mm. they're doing, making sure that they get to know them, they get to go there, they get to see the problems that they face, this just builds a much better relationship. But at the end of the day, again, it doesn't really matter which location you are, what payroll you are. We are all part of the same team. We just work for different yes. companies. And I think this was, yes. this was critical for us. And I always put a lot of emphasis here. Outsourcing is not bad. Outsourcing is only bad if you set it up incorrectly. And a lot of the exactly. cases where I've seen, oh, this company is not providing a great service, when I actually ask a couple of questions, oh, we just told them to do this, but we didn't really yeah. engage with them after. It was like, Demands, okay, here's no the fence, send it over the fence. Now you guys take care of it. If everything is good, we're not going to say anything. But if things are bad, then we're going to come in. And this, it's mm. this type of models that obviously makes then the service bad, one. And then two, it creates this negative perception because if you're working for a company where you know that, okay, these guys from support, they outsourced something, but the outsourcing provider is actually not uh, hitting the targets, outsourcing is really mm. bad. Well, guess what? There's more to that story and maybe we didn't set up this correctly. So I yes. think a couple of years ago and looking at a lot of tech companies, um, luckily the ones that I have worked for, I think they really focused on, on building this, building this relationship, making sure that everyone is part of this one team. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the stories that I've heard have been companies that, okay, we are scaling, we have a product that we want to put in the market, we are really good on this, but we know nothing about operations, so let's just make sure that we outsource it and then they can figure it out for us. And with no yes. support uh, to the outsourcing provider, obviously it's not going to go well, and then it creates this negative perception. Whereas yes. nowadays, and even if I sometimes I look at LinkedIn, I see a lot of the, even the podcasts that you guys have been, uh, have been making, and when I, I mm. always have this, Maybe it's some people would call it stalking. Other people like me would call it curiosity. I always want to see where mm. these people come from. And I can see that a lot of them actually come from outsourcing providers. I think, yes, I think you interviewed the one for N26, Benedict. And yes, I also Benedict think Norman. that he came from, he came from, he, uh, he came from the outsourcing world. A huge outsourcing firm in Madrid. Exactly. Yep. And he's working same at a huge... Same with Mara as well. Exactly. Mara, the same thing. So, and they're, they're working at companies that have valuation much higher than most of the ones there in the market. Companies that very are true. scaling very well. Companies mm -hmm. that are doing this, not just locally, but globally. And if you look at where these people came from, they came from this industry, the same industry that I came from. So again, yes. it's how you set this up. It's how you have this experience. And I think that it has changed a lot. And what companies are now doing is even heads of support before you would have, okay, this guy is working on product. Let's try to bring him in to help a bit. And he's going to be responsible for support. Maybe when you start a company, you do that because obviously you don't have enough people and you also don't have enough customers. So you can afford to do that. There's a lot mm. of companies where you see the CEO, uh, executives actually answering customers because there's no one else and they really want to understand the product. But as yeah. they start scaling, then they bring in someone that has done this, either at a captive company or an outsourcing provider. And mm. some of the best companies that have had the best success, they actually have people coming from these areas because, again, 
it is not rocket science. I don't think support is rocket science. I think it's a simple thing. Customer has a problem, you fix the problem. But mm. in a lot of cases, you just need the experience. You really need to understand, okay, I'm setting up this flow for customers. I already know that they're going to have problems here, here, and here. It's not because I'm smarter than the rest of my colleagues or the people that I've worked with. It's just because mm. I have 15 years of this. I haven't, I've, I've understood how customers perceive this. So it is really critical, I would say, to, to look at this one people that have the experience, and then two, mm. as you start outsourcing, build a relationship. It's not someone that's just going to do this for you at a cheaper rate somewhere uh, outside of, uh, of your premises. It is another team that is just on a different payroll, but it is still your team, and you are still accountable for the support you give your customers. And at the end of the day, one of the things I don't really like is when companies say, oh, yes, this was our outsourcing provider. No. This was you. It is your responsibility. You Take just some have responsibility. Exactly. You yeah. just have your team distributed differently. Uh, yes. But you just need to fix it. So, saying. No, I really agree with you. And, and it makes me just think that there aren't many things in life where you make no investment personally and then it comes out great. You know, exactly. like where does that happen? And, and it's applied in so many other walks of life. And I find it so confusing. Whereas people want to, to put things into good, bad, black, white. And it's often it's about, okay, well, well, how much effort did you put into it? Something I say to my friends all the time when they think about good and bad decisions, I say, you know, if you think of going to the forest, you don't think that going to the forest is something inherently dangerous, right? But if you go to a forest that you've never been to without a compass, without a map, and your phone has 20% and you don't tell anyone that you're going, that becomes very, very dangerous very, very quickly. Oh, you sprained your ankle? Oh, you don't have any signal? Oh, you have no idea where you are and no one knows you're there? Well, guess mm, what? you're kind of messed up. Yeah, you know? So I just think that it's, it's about a perception. And I really like that you brought in uh, Mara and Benedict's example, because again, it's, it, it is what you said. It isn't, it isn't rocket science, but I would say that support is an art. And as with many arts, be they martial arts or creative arts, it's about the time that you invest into it. And usually when you invest a lot of time, it pays dividends in understanding and with the kind of grace that you can do it with. And I think something that really rings true, listening to people that are experts in support and, and very accomplished support leaders, is that you have to be a good manager. You have to be not necessarily a people person, but you have to understand people. You have to know how to set people up for success. And I think the beauty of this industry is that you can't succeed being a crappy manager. Like going back to just how this conversation started. If you're a maths geek and you like AP, uh, KPIs and metrics and things like this, you may be an absolute genius at that. But you need to translate it into how are these people feeling? What are the causing factors, you know? Going back to, to my background in statistics as the, the basis of a lot of social science research. And in order to interpret social science research, you have to push beyond the statistics and ask the fundamental questions of how and why. What are the philosophical implications of what we're asking? Are we asking the right questions? Are we actually making the correct analysis and therefore drawing the correct conclusions? Otherwise, you can publish a paper that says something absolutely ridiculous, something that's seemingly obscene. And you say, oh, well, the numbers show that this is true. Well, yeah, your numbers sucked and you yeah. chose the wrong numbers and you applied them incorrectly. So you can't be surprised that your research is, is garbage at the end of the day. And I think that something I wanted to kind of bring into the discussion at this stage is that something we've spoken about so much on this show is that if you view support as a cost center, you will not reap the benefits. You will not reap the benefits because you're only seeing one side of the story. And this is so true also with this outsourcing example, right? If you see support as a cost and you're outsourcing just to minimize your costs and to try and absolutely spend the bare minimum because you really don't care and you just want it out of your hair, just do it, I don't care, just whatever, for as least money as possible, how can you expect it to really pay dividends for your company? How can you expect it to really pay dividends for your apartment? But something that I find really, really 
motivating in talking to you, Rui, and also with the fact that you brought in Benedict and Mara, is that it is a great place to start your career. Not only is support a great place to start your career, but you shouldn't be put off by an outsourcing firm. And I think it's really cool that in this conversation, I think that we've given some people to, you know, if you're working in a company and you're looking to work with an outsourcing firm, maybe expect to hire a middleman, you know, the multiple Ruiz that you mentioned that Facebook has. And also, if you're looking to work for an outsourcing firm, maybe pay attention to how they deal with their, uh, their employees and, and how they set up their relationships with their, with their customers. Um, be that the, the the companies that are hiring the outsourcing firms and, and pay attention to how that can work. But I think that your whole story is emblematic of the fact that um, starting your career in an outsourcing firm and, and not necessarily buying into the classic Pure direction of maths, degree, etc., um, can lead you to great success. And that's why it's so cool to see you sitting before me today uh, with the career that you've had, with the experience that you've had. Um, and it's, 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 it's just wonderful to hear and it's wonderful to see. So we've somewhat come to the end of the session, Rui. Um, at this stage, I always open it up to the guests and say, is there something that we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on? Um, and if not, is there something that you want to leave the listeners with? No, I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything, to, to be honest. Um, again, mm. I don't think outsourcing has the perception, the right perception that it should have. I think outsourcing mm. is a very powerful tool that you have when either you don't have the capacity to hire where you are. Let's say if mm -hmm. you need language re resources and you're in a location where you can't really hire that many language resources, then you can outsource. Mm. Maybe just putting it in my, my new job and my new company. Obviously, if you want to hire people remotely and you don't have a company, you can obviously also look at companies like Deal, where we basically allow you to hire people anywhere in the world, uh, regardless if you have a legal entity there or not. So I mm -hmm. think nowadays it also it, it is also shifting a, a bit more. I don't think outsourcing will for, um, will end. I don't think again automation, chatbots, and all that will replace the the agent. I think that we will always need so uh, people working on this on this space. Uh, the way mm -hmm. that you do it, it can just be completely different. Yes, it is not a cost. I don't think support is a cost at all. It is a cost if you don't set it up correctly, and then it will have a cost, but a negative cost. Uh, we are the front line to, to the company. We are representing the product. We are representing the brand. If we are not set up correctly, then the first impression that the customer is going to have is going to be negative. And if he has a negative perception, again, we know how that impacts long-time value of customers, Absolutely. how that impacts churn, how that impacts the spend that they actually put on our product. And if you set this up incorrectly, it's going to be really bad. Obviously, yes. costs will always be an important component. And don't get me wrong, even for companies like Facebook that have a lot of money, really big teams, they put a strong emphasis on, first of all, we don't even want the customer to have a problem. So how can we yes. make sure that we fix the product? Because again, you can have two models. We can say, I have unlimited budget, so I will hire a million of people to fix, to just answer the customers but the problem mm -hmm. is that the customer already had the problem so if you're just throwing people at the problem you're just making sure that you can answer his query but you're not really fixing his problem and you're not preventing from other people you're treating the symptom and not solving the disease exactly so i think mm -hmm. that's one thing the second thing is you also have the ability as i was saying to scale your operation much faster uh, you know if yes. you start a company in a market that you do not have any recruiting expertise or your brand is not strong there then obviously it's going to be really hard for you to hire to hire people. If I think about Uber, uh, when we launched our center here, Uber is a global brand. Everyone knows Uber. Mm. But Uber customer support in Portugal, not a lot of people understood that there was a call center here. We were hiring for a lot of languages. So it was really hire, hard for us to, to hire a lot of language resources, not because our brand wasn't strong, 
But just because people would always associate, oh, Uber, they're probably looking for drivers. Well, guess what? We weren't looking for drivers. We were actually looking for people to support our, our community. So yeah. to give this parallel, a company like Uber that doesn't have any problem on hiring because it's a very strong brand, it's a really good brand to work for, we had some challenges initially because we were new to the market. So if you mm. are new to the market, it also allows you sometimes to work with providers that are really strong, have a massive recruiting machine, and they can actually hire the people for you. And then I would mm. say third... Use their competitive advantage to your advantage. Exactly. And then I would say the third one, which is also important, is as companies decide to expand globally, most mm. of these providers, they actually have a global footprint. So if I think about, mm. let's say, Facebook, we had some providers that we were working in one location. We had to expand our footprint in other regions of the world. And we would go back to the same provider and say, hey, what can you do on this location? Can you actually scale your team there? Can you hire the people that we need? And what we realized was that for us, Facebook, leveraging the, the an existing provider to launch a new center in a different region, the knowledge transfer was much more smoother because they already knew mm. the product, they already knew the processes. We already had a relationship with them. So even for my internal resources, they didn't really need to spend that much time on traveling to these locations, training the people, because our outsourcing provider could do it for us. So all in all, mm. outsourcing, I think, is negative perception out there in the market is incorrect. Two, don't look at it as a cost. And then three, a lot of the people that you see having really high-level roles, uh, having great success in, the, in their career, they actually came from this industry. And we've already talked yes. about Mara, we talked about Benedict, we can talk about myself, and there's many, many more. And even when I look mm. at hiring, the degree, to your point on Elon Musk, I don't think the degree really cares. What it cares is the experience. I'm not, yes. I wasn't really good at math for a lot of reasons. One, I don't think I really liked school that much. You know, my dad is an engineer, mechanical engineer. My mom is an English teacher, so highly educated people. And then I didn't really want to, to go to school. Mm. But what I realized was that, okay, wait, most of the things that I was actually learning at school, I actually apply them. I mean, I'm not a math guru, but I can run a regression line. I can do all of these complicated things because I had yep. to use it on my job. And now that I actually yep. understand, okay, wait, I want to see why volume is growing and how many people do I need in six months as well. Let me actually do a regression line because now it makes sense in my head. But 15 yeah. years ago, it was just my teacher putting random numbers and I was just so bored that I'd really care yeah. about it. So yeah. it is really important, again, just to, to end to you also to your point. When I look at a CV, yes, the level of education is important because if you don't have the experience, then the education is critical because that's where you're learning everything. But nowadays, mm. I think experience is what matters most. And then yeah. speaking to the person, talk to the person. He might not have good mathematical skills on his CV, but it actually has a logical and analytical sense that it actually is what you're looking for. You don't really need yes. him to build something to send uh, another rocket to the moon. <laughs> you just need him to understand that if the problem is here, then how can I break this problem into different pieces? How can I make sure that I follow different hypotheses? Mm. And that, for me, is the most critical thing in, in support, where you have a lot of problems, you need to find solutions, and the one thing that you need to do is I have this customer in front of me. If I'm on the phone with him, I know that for the first two minutes, he's going to pay attention. After that, he's completely going to ignore me and he's just going to get frustrated. So how can I use my brain in these two minutes to try to find or exhaust all of the potential uh, root causes to his problem and fix his problem? And for me, that's a skill that, one, you learn with practice. That's why it's important that people in this industry have the experience already dealing with customers. And then, two... Again, you need people with great analytical skills, not people that have PhDs in physics and can basically do all of these complicated equations, but then they can't really understand, okay, why is my router not working? Well, ask him to restart, ask him if all of the cables are in, 
And this for me is uh, the most critical piece. So, so yeah. Absolutely. Well, Rui, thank you so much for your time. Thank this you. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I really enjoyed your company and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. You too. See you next time. Have a great day, everyone. See you later. This podcast is made possible by Kaizo. Kaizo is a performance management platform that helps customer support teams be more productive and engaged. If you're a Zendesk user, go to kaizo.com and book a demo today.